2: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I really enjoyed my conversation with Professor Lakshmi Subramanian, the author of The Sovereign and the Pirate, Ordering Maritime Subjects in India's Western Literal. Lakshmi Subramanian is currently a professor of history at the BITS Pilani Goa campus an Emeritus Professor of History at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, Calcutta, and holds the position of Associate Fellow in the Institute of Advanced Studies in Nantes. In this conversation, we'll learn about the maritime politics and violence of the 18th and the 19th centuries, but also about the 16th and the 17th centuries to explore the changing dynamics of maritime jurisdictions in the Western Indian Ocean. If you want to know how does the Atlantic world piracy compare to that of the Indian Ocean, what differentiated between the maritime politics of the British East India Company and the Indian polities such as the Mughals, the Marathas, and the people of Gujarat and Kutch, join us. Finally, I asked Professor Subramanian, what can South Asian history gain from an oceanic perspective? Stay tuned to learn the answer. Hello and welcome to New Books in Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Ahmad Yaqub al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Lakshmi Subramanian the author of the excellent book, The Sovereign and the Pirate, Ordering Maritime Subjects in India's Western littoral, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. By discussing this book, we will cruise around the waters of the Gulf of Cambay on the east and move west to Gujarat, Katiawad, Kutch, Sindh, Makran, the Persian Gulf, and back to the Arabian Sea. Speaking from historic Goa on the shores of the Arabian Sea, Lakshmi Subramanian, welcome to New Books in Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your fabulous book today.
1: Thank you very much, Ahmed, for hosting me. I really look forward to speaking about a book which is still quite fresh in my mind, although it was published in 2016.
2: Thanks. Uh, Can you start us off by um, a few words about yourself, that is where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study and any influential mentors that you had?
1: Um, Absolutely. Um, I uh, was born and brought up in Calcutta, did most of my education in Calcutta, Calcutta University and an important university in West Bengal. So I'm a sort of homespun product um, and uh, was lucky to be uh, witness to some very robust debates around the formation of maritime history as a subfield of Indian economic history. There was a lot of reservation those days, and I'm talking about the early 80s, a lot of reservation about whether we needed a subfield like Indian maritime history, and I was very fortunate to have as my mentor, uh, Professor Ashim Das Gupta, who really carved out the field of Uh, Indian Maritime History, under whom I completed my doctoral thesis. Uh, I was also very fortunate in being privy to some of the most exciting scholarship that was emerging in the 80s, thanks to Michael Pearson, Arasaratnam, Om Prakash, all of whom formed a sort of informal collective in India those days. And so um, I was privy to some of the most exciting, robust conversation. And I think that's one of the reasons why I became interested in the ocean per se. Uh, As a South Asianist uh, trained in Indian economic history, uh, our natural concern or natural orientation is to look at land, is to look at land-centered empires and the sea somehow really never figured in our imagination. But I think thanks to the conversations I was able to have at my postgraduate level with some really sterling scholars like Ashim Gupta, I think my interest in the ocean was sort of peaked. My primary field of interest continued to be uh, trading communities and trading business groups and their negotiations with uh, a variety of challenges, not just the colonial state, but a variety of challenges. But subsequently, I think as the field of Indian Ocean studies grew in the nineties, late nineties, I was more interested, or shall I say, I was, um, I was sort of peaked by uh, looking at the actual experience of coastal society. I felt that we were really not looking at coastal peoples more carefully, uh, partly to do with the kind of archive that we had at our disposal, but partly to do with the excessive preoccupation we had with business and enterprise. So in a sense, um, I was uh, informed in writing this book on piracy, I was very largely inspired and informed by Pearson's later work on literal society, by the very notion of amphibiousness, the porousness of maritime society to be able to get a better grasp of what was actually going on in the Indian Ocean as far as literal societies were concerned. So you could say that in writing this book on piracy, I've been um, I've been constantly engaging with the way in which the historical discipline in India has emerged and expanded. Initially, it was to do with looking at maritime history as a subfield. Subsequently, it was to do with looking at subaltern voices, at looking at marginal people, thinking about unconventional archives, doing a kind of micro-historia of marginal voices. So in many ways, you could say that uh, by the time 2016, you know, The cycle had been complete, and this book, in a sense, is an embodiment of my own engagement with the way the historical discipline has evolved, emerged, unraveled, and amplified.
2: Fascinating. Um, I really envy you for having met all of these great names, um, which I aspire to learn from. So uh, tell us how you came to write The Sovereign and the Pirate. How did the idea develop? What was the research process like? And can you share with us your writing experience? Uh,
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, the book came out in 2016. I did about three years of active research uh, in putting the material together on the basis of which I was able to braid a fairly complex story. My initial impulse in writing uh, this book uh, really came from a very chance document I found in the archives in Bombay when I was really looking at a particular court case um, where you had a a big litigation about insurance, whether or not the merchant concerned was prepared to pay the insurance Uh, to pay the money to the insurer uh, on account of a particular piratical attack. So I was really looking at insurance, I was looking at protocols, and I came across um, a chance deposition by a pirate in one of the court cases. And that really uh, set me thinking about um, whether or not there was a story to be told. I mean, uh, I was preoccupied with looking at the risks involved in uh, coastal trade, in long-term trade, and then I came across this very interesting and eccentric deposition from a pirate, and I felt that, uh, could I actually look at the figure of the pirate? What was this person actually saying in the court of law? Was it simply a rhetorical flourish? Had he a story to tell? And that really brought me to uh, the whole idea of looking at the small people, the menu purple of the Indian Ocean, to try and see whether I could put together a narrative of these voices that were also using the sea, that were operating the sea, and that had obviously a very different imagination and who worked in a very different political and moral economy. So from that fragment of... A litigation document, I decided to literally parse the Bombay archives, the various series that make up the Bombay archives. It's a fairly rich and a fairly capacious archive, difficult to navigate. But then I started looking at this material more carefully. And then I realized that there were several stories to tell. And one of the most compelling stories that appealed to me then was the... Uh, diversity of voices within the English East India Company establishment about piracy. And I was particularly interested in one voice, the voice of Colonel Alexander Walker, who was sent around 1800, 1882, to solve the problem of piracy. And I knew that he had very rich private papers that you know, were housed in the uh, National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. I'd had occasion to look at his papers on another occasion. So I was very excited at the possibility of uh, actually investigating this man, what he had to say, the kind of ethnography that he was trying to do of coastal and literal society. So from that small document that I chanced upon in Bombay, I decided to go and look at the personal collections of these residents and these men who had a slightly different position on piracy, on predation. And that then brought me to try and think about this project in all sorts of, uh, you know, exciting ways. So that was the research and the research happened between 2014-2015. I was able to go to Glasgow for a while on a fellowship, and I used that to go to the uh, Edinburgh Library, uh, look at the Walker material, which is really very, very striking and very rich in terms of its uh, very nuanced understanding of local society. And I felt that a very complex story of coastal society, of literal society, of maritime experience could actually be constructed. So that was the research process. Probably I really enjoyed doing the research because um, I was pursuing uh, the musings of one man. I was looking at the uh, views of one very sensitive ethnographer. I was looking at the judicial depositions of pirates, which I realized was very difficult to read and uncode. And then once I'd got most of the material under my belt, I sort of wrote it. Uh, it took me about a year to write and uh, the writing process was a little hard. But on the other hand, uh, besides being a story of piracy and maritime politics or literal politics of the 18th and early 19th century, it was as much to do with the archive. So at the core of the project, of course, is the story of the literal uh, pirate, the literal mm-hmm. actors. But at the base of the whole story, it really is the archive. I was as interested in trying to grapple with the challenges of working with a colonial archive, with all its signatures, with all its biases, with all its silences. And it was as much an exercise and historical method as it was a story to be told. So that really was the writing process. It took me a fair bit of time. It took me about a year, but uh, I, I really enjoyed doing it. So, uh, you know, yeah. I have- Really, no, no regrets.
2: Th- thank, thank you for writing the book. Uh, anyone who reads the book actually can appreciate the thick footnotes and the research that you put into it. And we will turn back to um, the archives later. Um, but I would like us to uh, start um, delving into the book because the book is so rich and there are so many things uh, that are, are worthy of noting. Um, so you've mentioned the book is about piracy. Uh, and pirates, it's about law, it's about literal society, and it's about the many uh, maritime polities uh, in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, Mm -hmm. The book is divided into five chapters with an introduction and an epilogue. Um, For the introduction and the first chapter, which is called Setting, I would like to ask you um, this question. The Indian Ocean have been uh, typified in many uh, historiographies as representing a specific kind of space, a space devoid of politics before the arrival of the Portuguese. Um, so, how would you how would you describe maritime politics and violence in the Indian Ocean in the period that the book covers between the end of the eighteenth century and the beginning of the nineteenth century? compared to the era prior to the arrival of the portuguese by the turn of the 16th uh, century
1: yeah that's that's really an excellent question and uh, in a sense it uh, it frames uh, my concerns when i began writing the book i mean we've all been fed on the staple diet of the indian ocean as a relatively uh, free scene with uh, relatively less violence in terms of politics and control than compared with other oceans. Now, I'm not suggesting that such a characterization is completely uh, facile. I think it's an important characterization. And I think it's to do with the fact that the Indian Ocean was exposed to a particular form of legal and military violence for a particular characterization of the Indian Ocean to happen. On the other hand, I was very conscious of the fact that a lot of interesting work had been done by scholars like Prang and Patricia Risso, who talked about the existence of certain kinds of coastal politics and certain kinds of technologies of control that were deployed by literal states to be able to extract the kind of revenues that you needed from the ocean. So I was very conscious of this sort of polemic that existed in Indian Ocean historiography. However, in writing this particular book of this particular timeline, I was particularly interested in making two important points. I was interested in suggesting that the Indian Ocean was a different kind of regulatory space. You did have the Portuguese and you did have uh, Mare Librem becoming a closed sea and you did have new technologies of control and regulation. But I also do believe that the ocean retained some of its individual autonomous character in spite of the aggression of the Portuguese. That's one. The other point I wanted to make in this book was that by the time we come to the late 18th century, the topography, the legal and political geography of the Indian Ocean had changed. And therefore, one had to study both literal politics and literal violence at the intersection of custom, both religion and state, market, grey markets, and migration. So I was actually trying to look at piracy, maritime violence in the late 18th century, not from the prism of the Indian Ocean being a passive zone, suddenly becoming militarized, rather by looking at literal politics as an extension of 18th century politics along the coast, which was beginning to use maritime resources as an auxiliary resource in building up certain kinds of states. So I believe that my attempt at locating piracy within a circuit of gray markets, a circuit of Dispossession and political conflict and migration makes this story of the northward pirate a little different from the story that you have in, say, the southward in Malabar, in Cochin, in the Konkan, where one could easily locate the story in terms of coastal response to Portuguese aggression. I think by the time we come to the 18th century, the nature of literal politics. Has actually changed along the Indian
2: Ocean uh, yes and and also in the, in the in the first chapter in the setting um, you set the scene uh, literally uh, for the book and you engage uh, in a comparative framework uh, where you are uh, probing this uh, these uh, sort of facile uh, uh, comparisons with the Atlantic world mm-hmm. during the early modern period mm-hmm. so uh, how did you find um, these two uh, basins uh, when when it comes to, you know, maritime violence? What are the differences in scale and volume? And uh, how would you describe the practice of privateering in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic uh, as compared to the Indian Ocean?
1: Uh, yeah, very good question. I think uh, we need to make a distinction between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean immediately as far as... Uh, indigenous piracy is concerned. Uh, For my period, I was particularly struck by the fact that the piracy that we speak of is really literal piracy and not high sea piracy. There are some occasions later on, and that's true with the crucial coast, uh, there are very few instances of real attacks on the high sea. A lot of the piracy and predation that I look at for this period really is about what in modern parlance one would call the territorial waters of a particular state. So it's about carving small spheres of influence along the littoral. And it is to do with an extension of politics inland by getting a certain access to the sea. And it was this particular access and this play between politics of land and politics at sea that the English East India Company was actually quite anxious to break. So I think immediately I will say that in terms of scale, the piracy of the Indian Ocean, I'm not saying it's less important. I'm simply saying that it's a very different kind of geography. And therefore, a different kind of technology that you needed to engage in the kind of literal raids that you come across in the 80s, 90s of the 18th century. These are small men with small boats, and it's the smallness of the boat that gives them the advantage. Because the geography of the northward, which is full of creeks, very small gullies, little inlets, are spaces that the larger vessels of the English East India Company is simply unable to penetrate. So in many ways it's a strange case of technology going the other way. So the Bombay Marine which has large ships able to convoy large shipping on the high seas is unable to prevent the kind of attacks you find on the littoral engaged by small boats with small men who are able to rejig any boat and turn it to their advantage. So I think in terms of just technology, uh, geography, uh, the location, the Atlantic Ocean piracy is very different from the Indian Ocean piracy that I speak of. There's an additional difference. I think in the Atlantic Ocean, we have a lot of privateering, which is actually endorsed by the various European states to conduct their own intra-imperial competition. And this is quite different from what you get in the Indian Ocean. I'm not suggesting that you did not have Indian uh, coastal players who were not privateers. You did have a situation where you have coastal chieftains who have some kind of I will say, fictive loyalty to the immediate boss and continue to exercise their rights to the sea. But this particular, uh, shall we say, association with a state is not so clearly defined. So although you have coastal chiefs who might... Uh, profess some kind of loyalty to, say, the Mughal state, which is the overarching state in the 17th century, or to the Maratha state, very important, in the 18th century, most of the coastal lords become quite autonomous and independent. So I don't don't want to look at them as privateers entirely. I will say that there is a degree of... um, you know, of support. It The piracy can be seen as a nested right within a larger structure of political authority. But on the whole, I will say that these are men who can double up as privateers, but who also have an independent conception of their control over certain maritime resources. It could be shipwreck, it could be fish, it could be fishing rights, it could be, you know, a, a, a certain... Degree certain nautical miles off your immediate station that you call your own. So I think that uh, I would not compare, uh, I would not make that easy comparison between European privateers and Indian privateers. On the other hand, I will argue that European officials who were very quick to dismiss all maritime action in the Indian Ocean as piratical, sometimes missed the more important political conceptions that these men had about the water, about resources that they wish to control.
2: Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm interested in these uh, local polities, if you can say more about them. Who are the Mughals? Who are the Marathas? Uh, who are the rulers of Qatyawad? Uh, because often we hear that gunpowder, uh, gunpowder empires were landed empires they were not interested in maritime politics and in this book you show that um, the Mughals and the marathas and others were quite invested uh, in maritime politics uh, so if you can reflect on that and how did they contribute to what you call new literal configurations and why was it not a situation of legal pluralism
1: okay uh- Okay, let me start with uh, the question of the Mughals. Uh, they don't entirely figure in my story, but you know, they are very important. I can't think about uh, talking about any politics of the 18th century without reference to the Mughals, because the Mughals are this overarching sort of entity. Uh, let me start by saying that the Mughals it is true are essentially a land-based empire and their imagination really was the cavalry man on horseback. That's the imagination. On the other hand, the Mughals were not indifferent to what was happening on the sea because after all, Mughal India depended crucially on silver imports from the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf and the European companies for their Uh, uh, trimetallic currency. So the question that the Mughals were not interested in trade or in the sea uh, would be an exaggeration. It's also true that the Mughals were able to play this delicate balance between the naval power of the Europeans with the land power they enjoyed. So I would actually say uh, the Mughals were also pretty amphibian. So I don't quite agree that the Mughals were not interested in the sea. I will simply say that the Mughals did not invest very much in building a kind of imperial fleet that could take charge of actually confronting the Europeans at sea. It's something that they did not not do. They did not need to do it either. So that's the point I think that I'd like to stay with. However, I'd like to say that by the end of the... 17th century and definitely by the early 18th century, both the Mughals in their local avatar and the Marathas, who are a very important successor regime uh, that sort of confront the Mughals in the 17th century and become very important in the 18th century, are entirely cognizant of the value of some kind of naval presence. So whether it's the Marathas who actually build up a small navy, who allow coastal chieftains along the northwestern littoral to build small navies and harass the Europeans at sea, or the Mughals who build up a small fleet under the cities of Janjira, who are quite an impressive fleet, I will say that there is already a recognition that resources at sea, and they could take the form of enhance custom duties, they could take the form of trading passes, they could take the form of privileges, uh, you know, of special privileges for trading, they could take the form of just downright resources to, to the sea, I think were beginning to become important for all the polities by the 18th century. By the time we come to the middle of the 18th century, particularly in the area that I look at, I, will argue, I have argued that maritime power is a key to the building of new states. And there is a recognition that we need to use both access to customs, access to trading privileges, access to revenue from trading permits, as well as attack on enemy property, enemy shipping, as a key maritime resource to be used in the building of states. And this is absolutely clear when you look at the mosaic of states that happens in the northward, particularly in South Gujarat, Kathiaward, and Kutch, where you have a very interesting constellation of land and maritime power that come together. It's not evident. It's not immediately obvious because the history of maritime India for all sorts of reasons, particularly political reasons, of the 19th and 20th century, has tended to emphasize the landed Hindu stroke Rajput dimension of power and has ignored the Islamic stroke syncretist local coastal element in its historical geography. So there is a tendency, and this this goes back to the 19th century, it goes back to a certain kind of colonial ethnography and then nationalist historiography. There's a tendency to look at politics either through the prism of the Mughal or through the prism of Rajput colonization, but never through the prism of very complex, literal uh, configurations that were syncretic, that were mixed, Mm -hmm. and that were deeply popular. So that's that's the element that I've wanted to recover. It's been very difficult to excavate that, particularly as a student of history, because one is so dependent on the textual archive. It's not something that the colonial officials were always interested in. I was just lucky that I had a slight maverick like Alexander Walker, who was fascinated by the genealogy of these pirate tribes in Kathiawar, in Kutch, and who was able to leave behind this genealogical account. Otherwise, I would not have been able to actually excavate the story. Because if you try and excavate the story from a presentist nationalist perspective, you will never get it. So, in many ways, and this is what I've tried to say, that uh, I was really interested in looking at the ways in which small literal societies were emerging in this complex commercialized region of the northward, Gujarat, and Kach, Kathiawar, where you had small rulers trying to stake claims to local resources who participated in limited urbanization, who laid claims to grey markets, who laid claims to certain trading channels and who were prepared to use the uh, coastal society pirates you know, privateers to be able to generate revenue and build this very complex coastal society. So that's the story that I was actually trying to piece together.
2: This is a nice segue to the third chapter, uh, which you call Towards an Ethnography of Piracy. Um, So you've mentioned uh, Walker, and I would like to know more about... um, your pushback uh, against uh, characterizing uh, the situation as legal uh, pluralism, Uh, right? Um, So uh, why was the Indian Ocean Northern piracy uh, was about literal politics? Uh, Who are these uh, local maritime subjects? Why were they involved uh, in these acts? Uh, And that will take me to ask you also, uh, how does the locals view of sovereignty, maritime jurisdiction and its relationship to labor and mercantile markets compare to that uh, of the British East India Company, increasing uh, power uh, by the turn of the 19th century?
1: Yeah, very good. I'm glad you raised the question of uh, legal pluralism. You know, I was uh, one of those uh, uh, you know, historians who are very, very impressed with uh, Benton's work and Jennifer Pitt and, um, you know, I've been in conversation with these scholars. But I'm not entirely convinced that we can use the idea of legal pluralism uh, for the Indian Ocean, certainly for this period. I think, first of all, I think, and I think this will tie in with the question that you're asking me about uh, coastal society, uh, their perceptions of sovereignty, what is it that they really wanted to do, what were they engaged in? See, I really think that we have to be very careful about, uh, about classifying pirates. I think uh, if you go deep and look at the story of both uh, states like uh, Junagadh or Bhavnagar or Okhamandal, which is a strange kind of confederacy, I think we need to reckon with the fact that there is a hierarchy of power. And not all men would be similar kinds of pirates who engage in the kind of legal posturing that Benton talks about. For one, I think that we have to make a distinction between states uh, who may or may not use certain communities to engage in maritime violence and use that to bolster their revenue basis. And we have to make a distinction between those kinds of rulers and actual communities who engage in occasional raids, who double up as pilots, as steersmen, and as pirates, but who have a certain network in place, a network of intelligence, a network of recruitment, and who have a certain kind of politics, that is quite difficult to pinpoint. So I'd like to start off by saying that uh, pirates themselves did not always engage in legal posturing. I feel that they were participating more in a kind of moral economy. I don't find my pirates constructing legal stories or legal documents. In fact, it's only later, from about 1800. When you have Walker trying to tell uh, you know, his superiors and these pirate states that, look, come to some kind of agreement, let us try and find the way in legal terms of uh, sharing our sovereignty with each other. Let us try and find some kind of formal edifice to be able to get rid of the problems that we are both facing. That you actually have the idea of law being introduced. For the most part, the my protagonists at the top might have occasional reference to uh, Mughal law, might have reference to customary obligation on the right to shipwreck, the right to compensation, the right to maritime resources under the water. This is what belongs to me. And beyond that, you know, might be free. That kind of demarcation of maritime waters. And you have the smaller men who might work for these state actors and who might be completely independent. So that was the that was the challenge because I had my pirates, my protagonists could be... One season working for established rulers could be the Raja of Junagadh. it could be the Raja of Purbandar, and at times they could simply say that I'm not going to listen to anybody and I'm just going to go and engage in a raid and attack a company ship and get what I want. So there is a particular way in which these actions are both uh, nested within a structure but they can be completely individual and autonomous. And this is what uh, made it so hard for me to uh, subscribe entirely to the idea of legal uh, posturing or legal pluralism. I think uh, it's very much to do with customary obligation. It's very much to do with seasonal occupation. And it's also very much to do with perception of dispossession, a lot of the piracy, uh, you know, converges on Okamandal, this small enclave, this epicenter of piracy in the northward. Um, when you have, you know, wave after wave of uh, campaigns of military cleansing operations by the English East India Company. On various states in the northwestern littoral, forcing small mobile coastal communities to keep moving. So, this is this mobile moving geography that I am trying to capture by looking at piracy, which is not necessarily anchored within a state, even. They might be anchored for some time, they might just completely go away at another time. Uh, so, you know, some of my uh, actors. Uh, find their way uh, to Kutch in 1812, they find their way to Makran in 1814. Suddenly I find them in records much later in the 1820s when uh, you, know, you have problems in the crucial Coast. So it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a case of moving geography. It's a case of a forced migration. Uh, it's a case of uh, these men are willing to work within a political economy that has got small states that's got merchants who use them to collect debts, uh, merchants who have control over certain gray markets whose goods are procured by piratical voyages. So it's a complex political moral economy, um, evidently not so insignificant that the English East India Company wants to break, uh, but it's not the kind of markets that you find in continental India. It's not the kind of markets that the English East India company really want to control. But the English East India company is concerned because there is a lot of attack by these small men on the cotton boats that come from this area reaching Bombay to go to China. I think it's the timing of these raids when Gujarati cotton is critical for the company's, uh, you know, external trade operations with China that I think the company is absolutely forced to think about uh, eliminating these piratical raids. I don't think that the company was even very clear about uh, their own conception of sovereignty. Sure, they wanted to convoy trade. They wanted their past to be the uh, sacrosanct pass, but there is a huge gap between what they want and what they, uh, what they do as practice. This is something I try to bring out in my book, that you have the anomaly of empire. You have this convoy that does not want to send its boats on time. It's too expensive. They're always cash-strapped. And they occasionally ask armed merchant vessels to provide convoy and then turn around saying that they are not listening to our convoy. So there is, on the ground, there are so many deviations from official policy that it's very hard for me to be convinced that even the company's conception of sovereignty over the sea was so well articulated. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it...
2: Before we move on to the, the company's politics, uh, I, I really would like the listeners uh, to have access to the beautiful descriptions you've provided of these maritime actors and their geographies. So you describe the the maritime actor here as a creature of the creek whose operations blur the boundaries between sea and land, between law and custom. So. What were the identity markers of these actors in terms of religion, caste maybe, and politics? And can you use the examples of Kanhuji, Angaria, and the Siddhis to elucidate these markers?
1: Sure. Um, uh, Kanhuji, Angaria, and the Siddhi, of course, uh, happened to be um, early 18th century protagonists. Uh, Kanuji Angria also has uh, supposed to have mixed parentage. There's a sense that he had Arab blood in him, uh, although he, of course, invokes uh, Hindu gods uh, to defend his claims to the sea. While the cities of Janjira obviously were men who uh, were hapshis who were brought by the Mughals to establish a fleet and they uh, developed or they become a fairly identifiable category in Western Indian society as men of the uh, literal. With uh, the Northern pirates and the pirates that I talk about and whom I call uh, the creatures of the creek, uh, I, I want to point out uh, to two things. Uh, I want to make the point that uh, my actors are an... In- incredibly mixed bunch. So uh, to say whether they were Hindu or Muslim uh, really would not make any sense. I would say that you have Hindu communities also participating as seafarers, as pirates. You have communities who profess a very loose form of Islam uh, and who bond with other communities, including men of Indo-Portuguese extraction to form this pirate crew. So the crew is a very mixed crew. Uh, So the markers, uh, I would say in terms of caste and religion, would be very, very mixed. What is interesting about these men are the ways in which they interact with their immediate bosses. The immediate bosses could be either a Muslim sultan of Purbandar or it could be Rajput Hindu chieftains who, because of their interaction with coastal communities, have a slightly reduced status in the Hindu fold. So, for example, some of the uh, rajas of Okamandal are unable to enter the temple at Dwarka, which is a very important temple in this uh, in this period, and which has access to some of the revenues that piratical voyages bring in. So it's obviously a very complex uh, moral, political economy in which these people are functioning. But what struck me was the mixed nature of the pirate crew. But what also struck me was the kind of network of social support that pirates had when they went on their expeditions. For example, in the depositions I quote at length, uh, I, I may not have quoted the entire deposition at length, but you have very interesting references to the pirates saying that I'm going to leave my wife with uh, in the house of this particular peer. This particular peer has promised to look after her until I return. So it's in on his guarantee that I'm going away. So clearly, there is a sense of social, as an, a social network that gives them some kind of support to be able to embark on these incredible, difficult voyages. They might have been short. So I, I get a sense of a very mixed uh, universe of practice, mixed universe in terms of uh, community mix, in terms of faith practice, and in terms of occupation. These are men who are incredibly versatile. These are men who are able to switch between navigating the ship of an English private trader one year to becoming the harbor master another year and to becoming a pirate a third year, to working for the Nawab of Kutch for one season and then completely rebelling because the Kutch Raja does not give them their due share, and they rebel against him and then go on their own. So it's this incredible variety of roles they're able to slip in and out that makes this particular protagonist very, very unusual. When I also talk about the creature of the creek, I also wanted to stress the geography in which these men operated. These creeks that are very tiny, very very jagged, and are contiguous to salt marshes and very saline villages uh, seem to also have a very close relationship with the village population. They're small villages, but you have interesting descriptions of villagers hiding their boats, you know, in the marshes so that they had some time to recoup. You have stories of villagers giving them some provisions before they can go and how difficult it was for the English East India Company ships to penetrate these creeks and hunt these men. When they eventually did, they did it by getting approvers. You know, they got men to chain sides. And then uh, it was with the help of these pirate-turned-approvers that, you know, the final... Uh, extermination of piracy happens. The other point I do want to make is that the company was very conscious of their virtuosity because when you have the Bombay Marine expanding subsequently, when you have the Marine uh, you know, expanding its operations, a lot of the recruitment at the lower level were exactly these men who had been pirates for about 20-30 years.
2: Uh. You've mentioned uh, their little boats. Um, We know that the the British have used the category of the Dao to describe the local uh, vessels in the Indian Ocean. Can you say something about the sort of uh, Daos uh, uh, were used along these coasts?
1: Uh, Very interesting. I think Daos continue to be used in a very big way right till the 20th century, by the way. I think even now, if you look at, uh, you know, anthropological work like Edward Simpson, you realize that the DAOs continue to be very important in um, you know, in controlling lower levels of trade from Gulf to Gulf. Uh, that's one. So you do have uh, references to DAOs, you have references to kotia. you have references to Patamar, you have references to a whole range of local shapes. But what struck me when I looked at these Boats and you do have uh, them categorized in the colonial documentation, not as exhaustively as you would have liked. But what struck me was the uh, ability of these men to attack uh, smaller ships of the company and then refit it to conduct their operations. So uh, I think uh, what was uh, particularly interesting about the boats that... uh, The pirates used were the way in which they refurbish company shipping, uh, especially the smaller variety, to make it seaworthy and to make it effective uh, in operating where they did. So that's something that comes to mind. It's true that uh, there's a tendency on the part of colonial ethnographers to characterize all shipping as dhaut. But that's not true. You have dinghies and dows and patamars and kotiyas. You have a series of interesting local ships, uh, particularly uh, that are built in the shipyards at Kutch and which are used by these men. And uh, some of their parts are actually uh, bought and sold in the grey markets uh, that are controlled by both the significant merchants as well as by smaller states.
2: Interesting. Um, so, so yes. Uh, so you have these vessels uh, of different shapes and sizes that are all lumped together under the category of the Dao, which becomes also a symbol of defiance of some sort. And that take us to the fourth chapter: docile subjects and subaltern resistance. Right. Um, so, I would like to know about uh, why the British established uh, naval force. Uh, the Bombay Marine in Western India. Uh, Why did they attempt to monopolize uh, the, the maritime space? And how did they, as you call it, create a situation of political instability that undermined existing arrangements between local units and the electoral populations? What were these arrangements and how were they undermined by the British?
1: Um, to begin with, I think the Bombay Marine uh, really become, comes into its own in the early 18th century. Of course, it was there before, but by the early 18th century, the Bombay Marine comes into its own as the most important police force that is meant to provide convoy services to indigenous uh, and European shipping on the Arabian Sea. Of course, uh, it's a, uh, providing convoy uh, protection is a euphemism for establishing the uh, ascendancy of the English East India Company, because this is a period, if you look at 1700 to 1780, it's a period when indigenous uh, shipping Uh, of the variety that we knew uh, existed in Surat in 1700, big indigenous shipping that controlled freight trade had been almost completely taken over by the English East India Company. So you do not have big indigenous Muslim merchants um, owning ships or freighting ships and playing an important part in the trade of the Arabian Sea. Nonetheless, uh, it's not as though Trade in the Arabian Sea completely vanished. You had uh, trade between Muscat, uh, you know, the Emirates, uh, present-day Emirates, and the West Coast of India, right? Till 1800, the imam, uh, you know, the the Sultan of Oman was an important shipping uh, player. So it's not as though trade uh, ends completely. But the English East India Company is very keen to establish its control as the dominant ship owning freighting agency for all trade. So in a sense, the Bombay Marine is really intended to ensure the hegemony of the company as the most important shipping and freighting agent. Secondly, I think the Bombay Marine was primarily important to convoy cotton trade, cotton and opium, from both Malwa, Rajasthan, Gujarat into Bombay, and from which it went to China. So I think a lot of the concern of the English East India Company was to ensure monopoly control over these vital commodities, cotton and opium, which is one of the reasons why they actually step up the operations of the marine, because there are attacks on their cotton boats. And many of the merchants actually begin to complain that this is getting to be too expensive. So I think the Bombay Marines really ended to look after the commercial interests of the English East India Company, its private merchants, and its Indian collaborators. In the process of doing so, the small trader, the small state, the small man whose resources, whose existence depended on small-time trade, suffered. So if you actually look at the ways in which the Nawab of Junagadh, the Nawab of Kambay, the ruler of Bhavnagar, But you know, name it, all the coastal states who really relied on some kind of loose arrangement with both revenues at land and revenues at sea suffer from this uniform pass that is imposed by the Bombay Marine. So that the Bombay Marine subverted existing arrangements is obvious. And one could argue that uh, maritime violence is partly a reaction to this kind of control and regulation that the company introduced. Uh, I'm, however, pushing it a little further. I'm saying that, of course, uh, this is a response to the kind of regulatory mechanisms of the English East India Company, but I'm also saying that there is a way in which uh, the coastal, the literal pirate is carving out a different kind of political field for himself. There is an intention. There is a way in which he's actually breaking out of the shackles of both the past system of the company, but also of the states for whom he works. And it was this voice that I wanted to recover. So it's not as though he's only resisting the company. He's also resisting the, uh, the rouse of Kutch. He is also resisting, uh, you know, the, the authorities at Mandvi. He's resisting all the local rulers when he feels the need to. And it was this particular kind of action that I was interested in. And I was trying to figure out why this happens. Is it because of extreme pressure on land? Is it because of endemic conflict, which makes it impossible for him to carry on, you know, either harvest or agriculture? Is it to do with the fact that trade has contracted and he no longer finds any uh, occupation as pilot or navigator? He has this difficult pass, the company pass to negotiate. So all these reasons then make him this uh, figure of, shall we say, I don't want to romanticize it, but figure of resistance, figure of some kind of, Intention, you know, uh, intend to rebel against the shackles that he finds himself in.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think this is really productive to think about intentionality and in these actions and the possible uh, political meanings. Uh, so what were the consequences of the company's failures in terms of liability for lost cargo, ships, and most importantly, claims to legitimacy?
1: Uh, well, I think um, until 1816, it's, uh, it's anybody's game. I, I don't think that the company was able to exercise the kind of control they wanted. Uh, and you really have a 50-year period of real altercations. So you can have uh, you know, some negotiation, you can have some resolution, but eventually the conflict begins to brew again. But I think by 1820, uh, much of the uh, depredations along the coast of Gujarat are actually over. And uh, the company has, after the 1820s, cotton ceases to be important. And so the, uh, the need to provide convoy and protection to cotton shipping also diminishes. And increasingly from the 1820s, the company really becomes not a maritime state, but a landed state. So the company is really at this, I mean, after 1815, after 1818, when they have acquired formal control over the Indian subcontinent, they are much more interested and invested in looking at revenue regulations. They're interested in looking at how to extract land revenue. So the uh, importance of maritime control, I think is no longer such an important priority. Also remember, after the 1820s, you don't even have Napoleon in the scene. So that threat of the French rivalry, which sort of erupted very briefly in the late uh, 90s and the early 19th century also has gone. So in many ways, I will say that uh, the maritime frontier is no longer such a priority or a preoccupation with the English East India Company. Much more uh, important is land revenue in South Asia, and much more important is the Trucial coast. I mean, after the 1820s, the interest really is to go and see what's happening in Oman and Muscat, and you know, going further into the Arabian Sea littoral, and that will take another 20 years uh, to contain and uh, to discipline. So I think uh, uh, this was a period when this is the cusp you know when the company is sort of entertaining conceptions of some kind of sovereignty some kind of cleaning up operations Uh, the company is hell-bent on protecting its cotton trade and you have this eruption of violence for 50 years um, in the form of uh, what I call literal piracy.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh. So you talk about uh, the, the treaties between Bombay and the rulers uh, of Kathiawad, and how these treaties were abolished after 1810. So why were they abolished? Uh, how these structures were themselves the results of increasing British control, uh, domination in Western India?
1: Yeah. Um, so the point is that from 182, when Walker comes into the field, Walker is an unusual resident. He feels that it's very important for the English East India Company to understand local realities and not impose a kind of uh, fictive legal principle on men who had no idea of what the British were talking about. He also genuinely believed that the English East India Company were making a mistake in uh, compelling these uh, states, these small states and small communities, to make good compensation. He felt that this was a vicious cycle. The more you put pressure on them to get resources, the more they are going to go into a cycle of piracy and violence, and he felt that this was a terrible idea. So, Walker had a very pragmatic approach to understanding uh, the need to take local stakeholders, and bring them into some kind of what he called customary obligation. So pledge them to support you, tell them that you are not going to ask for compensation, and enter into a structure of treaties whereby you have some kind of leverage. Now, Walker was very unpopular with the rest of the establishment. The rest of the establishment thought that he was far too optimistic, it was a presumption to make a distinction between states and communities as far as they were concerned. Coastal states in India were uh, treacherous. Uh, You know, they engaged in perfidy. You could not believe anything they said. So there was this sort of typecasting of uh, coastal states and their subjects as completely treacherous subjects. And the only, uh, you know, the only remedy was to bring them under complete control And then perhaps uh, impose a very different set of treaties, which is exactly what happened after 1820. As I said, after 1818, when the English are in full control in Western India, having defeated the Marathas, the most important uh, contender to Paramount Sea in the 18th century, once they had defeated the Marathas, they were in a position to impose a very different set of arrangements on the Western Indian state. So from 1818 right to 1854, you have Western Indian state agency. So you have a series of treaties that are imposed on all these small states. And they are really, you know, by this time, the states have lost all teeth. They have no civil jurisdiction. They have no criminal jurisdiction. They don't even have rights to uh, produce more salt uh, than what the British asked them to do. So we are really... Uh, looking at a hegemonic structure uh, from 1812, 1814, and all the earlier treaties that Walker had in mind are simply scrapped. And you have a completely different system that is imposed, which is a hegemonic structure as befits an imperial power after 1818.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've mentioned earlier your experience in the archives. And in chapter five, you pose critical questions about the colonial archives, and you call it piracy in retrospect. So if you can share with us, uh, what was uh, your observation of the fragmentary and limited nature of the colonial archive while examining the discursive practices uh, in them? What was the process like in examining the rhetoric of the East India Company Closely, Can you tell us about the relationship between um, colonial knowledge, ethnographic formulation, and the formation and production of the archives, as your study showed?
1: Uh, Thanks, Ahmed, for that question. Uh, It was probably the chapter that I enjoyed most writing. Uh, You know, when I embarked on this project, I was very conscious of the obvious challenges that the colonial archive would pose for me. I knew that this was an archive which was going to say very little about uh, Indian literal actors, except perhaps in very disparaging terms, or uh, would just be silent. So in many ways, I was not expecting to prize the colonial archive open to the extent I did. So Having said that, I do want to say that uh, since I've worked on the colonial archive for a very long time, and uh, particularly because I looked at trading society, which is better represented in the colonial archive, and also to do with the fact that they were collaborators of the colonial regime. So uh, they sort of come out, uh, I won't say in a more positive light, but they have a lot more visibility. Uh, Because I knew the colonial archive, I think I had a fair sense of how the archive was actually put together. So I had a a good idea of the kinds of concerns that uh, preoccupied British administrators in Western India in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 80s, in the 90s. And so I was, I could sort of anticipate uh, where to look for the kind of material I was looking at. So the first thing that struck me about the colonial archive was the uh, extreme attention that um, the officials of the company paid in understanding topography. So I knew that a lot of the material that I needed to look at was the marine surveys that these men did in the 80s and 90s. This is partly to do with the fact that the Bombay Marine is keen on recruiting coastal population as its labor force. It's also important because the Bombay Marine wants to have access to timber forests to be able to build local ships. So there was a lot of interest in maritime surveys. So a lot of the survey literature gave me a sense of the concerns of a colonial ethnographer, and I pursued that to acquaint myself with the geography and with the material landscape of the region that I was studying. Beyond that, I knew that uh, the colonial state was uh, really uh, keen on building a documentary apparatus of petitions. If uh, one looked at the uh, Bombay Archive in any detail, whether it's the commercial department, the public department, the marine department, you are actually flooded by petitions. So it took me a while to be able to make a typology of these petitions, what kind of petitions were coming coming through, what were the petitions that were not being reported, because Petitions that came from men who wanted protection uh, constituted one easy source. But, uh, you know, complaints against the company uh, did not often find their way into the archive. So I really tried very hard to both read the silences of the archive, but I also tried very hard to look at moments of altercation. And looking at moments of altercation forced me to look at political uh, material, you know, political files, where unexpectedly, I got a great deal more of the actual problems that, uh, you know, the company had to encounter when they dealt with uh, with these groups. So that was one kind of series that I then went into. But... More uh, to the point, and I think the epistemological challenges of working with a colonial archive with all its biases, with all its signatures, which said Indian states are perfidious, these are treacherous men, these pirates are deadly and dangerous, these are savage. uh, That's one kind of signature that I was expecting anyway, and therefore I knew how to read it. But in addition to this, I think what really made the colonial archive so exciting was the legal depositions that I came across of the pirates themselves. And here I have to say, uh, of course, uh, these depositions also were taken down. And I have no doubt that uh, they must have gone through a certain filter. So I'm not saying that this is raw data, but whatever it is, you actually had these very lengthy depositions that gave you a sense of how you could use the archive to great benefit. You could actually read it very carefully, very critically, and you could juxtapose it to later day ethnography that came on this particular region where pirates and outlaws enjoyed a particular romanticization or criminalization in the hands of the British state. So by looking at the archive as it was being produced in the moment, after all, Walker Walker was writing in 1805. The colonial depositions were coming in 1812. The archive was being put in the present. It was being assembled in the now. But I could then compare it with the later day representations of the same people 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and then reading this particular archive as it had been constituted, with the kind of vision that was coming 20 years later, really gave me a a set of pointers to how to read. So I think when I wrote that chapter, it was really about how the archive was being produced, what kind of knowledge interested the company men, from marine surveys to ethnographies of local population, to local society, to politics, and then juxtapose that with later day representations of uh, Rajput valor, of, uh, you know, coastal barbarity, of the dreaded pirate, Of this kind of representation that comes retrospectively, I think, gave me a, a set of uh, you know, gave me a set of tools to read this uh, with much greater sensitivity than I would normally have. So it was not just saying that the colonial archive says this and that's all we have, but nor was I prepared to say that the colonial archive was banal. It was not. The archive was put together for a particular purpose. The archive, because it was put together in a particular context, I knew would carry certain signatures, certain elisions, certain omissions. And then reading later-day representations gave me this opportunity to go back to the archive, to go back to the fragment, to go back to all this mixed bag of depositions and petitions and representations and marine strategies to be able to tell the story to the best of my ability.
2: Yeah, and I really found the, the chapter useful uh, as a graduate student and thinking about reading uh, along the grain and against the grain. And um, it's it's really important that historians, uh, uh, you know, share these sort of uh, readings uh, with their readers because it helps us to go j- beyond just the footnotes to understand, you know, how the his, the historiographical craft functions in the archives um so in the epilogue you bring it all nicely together and you consider the idea of literal society for understanding the politics of piracy and linkages between the literal and the hinterland and you take na- the narrative further uh to talk about uh the 19th century uh in 1830s and on to to say that really law despite all of these efforts of East india company was still changing and information and, and you contend that law to be inv- invoked against piracy was not so simple um i would like to use this epilogue also to think about the maritime uh the the literal societies, um, for thinking about South Asian history. Uh, At the beginning, you've talked about nationalist narratives and how they preclude certain conversations and certain historical readings. Um, So uh, after writing this book and other books that you've written about medieval uh, seafaring, um, what can South Asian history gain from an oceanic perspective?
1: That's a very good question. I mean, how do oceans matter? Do oceans matter? It's a great question. You know, it's something that I keep thinking about. And um, um, I think just to say that uh, by using oceans and basins as categories, geographical categories that might help us conceptually advance the field, It's not saying much. I mean, we've said that nation states and the nation and territorial spatial units, uh, shall we say, the myth of the continent. We've stayed with this for a very long time and we know all the uh, loopholes that have arisen uh, with this kind of uh, nation state centric narratives. So my question then would be, or an attempt to answer this question, how do oceans then help us... uh, Uh, explore the myth of the continent. Yes, at one level, I will say that unless we have a clearer understanding of uh, waters, of maritime spaces, they could be extended ones, they could be literal ones. I don't think we can really make much sense or we can't make much meaning of uh, ideas such as integration, ideas such as movement, ideas such as migration, Uh, you know, these tend to be just words. These conceptually do not help us with the historical imagination. So perhaps if we think about the constant play between the ocean as the ultimate highway of communication, of ideas, of portability, of mobility, then perhaps we think about mobility and migrations and interactions much more fruitfully than we do now. Because I think this is perhaps where uh, at least an attempt to engage with the maritime imagination might help us cut through some of the insularity of national narratives that seem to come with land space. So, for example, if I have to talk about boat building, if I have to think about an ethnography of boat building communities or fishermen or seafaring communities, or even take the case today of fishermen being uh, stranded off the waters of Sri Lanka or India or Pakistan and we don't know how to get them or can we get them? I think if we get a better sense of how men who operate these vast expanses feel about their particular amphibian location in relation to both land and sea, I do think that our imagination expands. I do think that the history of South Asia can be told differently. We can think about perhaps... If we expand this kind of imagination, we might even come across new conceptual categories. We think of the vatan, very, very closely connected with the land. Can we think about the darya? Can we think about the sea? Can we think about other categories that water generates that might help us expand our understanding of all that has preoccupied us in terms of power, territory, control, and submission. So I think uh, mobility, circulation, migration, I think are words that are loosely used and have not been given the conceptual weight that I think they deserve. And I perhaps, perhaps then oceans and basins and uh, literal spaces and maritime imaginations can help us, you know,
2: go further along absolutely uh th- these are really important insights and thank you for sharing them uh, with us uh well lakshmi we've taken up a lot of your time and uh in new books network we like to ask what are you working on now can you tell us about your current and future projects i know you've published another book in the same year uh, called Three Merchants of Bombay. So maybe if you can talk a bit about that book and what you are working on currently.
1: Okay. Uh, thank you, Ahmed. Um, well, you know, I have two interests. Um, I work on Maritime India a fair bit. I also work on music and I published a recent book on Gandhi, which was uh, very different, but uh, forced me to think a little bit about the nation and the space that the nation inhabits in our head. The Project that I'm currently working on is a social history of trust. I'm looking at trust uh, among merchant networks and I'm looking at the social history of trust through a long duré perspective. I'm going to be looking at the way trust protocols and trust practices emerge in the 18th century, how they change, or do they change in the 19th century, uh, and how do merchant communities in India, particularly along the literal, I'm really looking at the Western literal, how do merchant communities think about their own histories? Uh, does trust matter to them? When they write themselves into history, when they script themselves, when they write about histories of their own communities, does trust really matter or are they looking more carefully at law? So do we look at law and trust as mutually exclusive categories or does one bleed into the other? So these are some of the larger conceptual questions that I hope to answer in this new book that I'm attempting, which is A Social History of Trust in a long-duried perspective.
2: That sounds like a fascinating project and I really recommend uh, your book and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for uh, sharing these insights with us. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the phenomenal book of Professor Lakshmi Subramanian. The Sovereign and the Pirate, Ordering Maritime Subjects in India's Western Literal, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. We can find the book on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Ahmed mazmi Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Indian Ocean World.